Softly Spoken is an introvert's guide to thinking out loud about identity, meaning, and the moments that make us who we are. A mix of stories and interviews, Softly Spoken is a podcast that takes a deep dive into the hidden moments that shape us. It's an invitation for you to consider the version of you you are creating right now. What are you learning about yourself in the process? My name is Stefan. And I'm your host and introvert-in-chief. If you had to describe yourself, how would you describe yourself? I would describe myself as Anne, a woman in her 40s. In Canada, my identity has changed to a woman of color. I didn't go by that identity before. A very happy and proud mother of two, a mental health professional, a friend, and a daughter. I'd like to do a bit of a chronological journey to get a sense of how you got to be who you are today as Anne, the kind, empathetic, beautiful person that you are. I've always assumed you were from India, but I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Maybe you can share with us some history around where you started life and where life took you in your childhood. For sure. Uh, And you were right in that. Yeah. So I was born to... So I am East Indian, so I was born to East Indian parents, but I was born in Zambia in a town called Chingola. I'm the second. My parents are teachers and they worked there. Moved to Nigeria when I was around five. Again, worked with my parents there. Was there till around 10 or 11. My dad passed in Nigeria and hence my mother decided to go back to India. Finished the rest of my school education there, did university there, got married there had my children there, and then moved to Canada eight years ago. You were in Zambia until the age of five. Mm -hmm. Do you have any memories of that that period of your life? I do. I do remember basically going to a convent run by white nuns, being among brown, black, and white kids, having a very safe and happy childhood. My dad was pretty much my whole world at that point of life. My mom was a symbol of kindness, a very soft-spoken woman. I have an elder brother, my sibling. Yeah, so it brings up very calm and peaceful memories, I should say. Did you have a sense at that time that you were different or did you feel like you belonged and this was just the way the world was? Yeah, and that's a very good question, Stefan. And I don't know whether it was the experiences or just me being very young in age. I don't remember feeling any different. But when I moved to Nigeria when I was a little older, I remember, I faintly remember differences as in realizing that I was different and different in a way that people thought of it as kind of better. Again, at that age, I didn't understand what that meant. For example, I remember in school, like in elementary school, girls in my class would be like, oh, your hair is so soft and they would admire my hair. So Nigeria, any person who's lighter skinned or people from other countries are called Oyibo, so which means white person. So they would refer to us as Oyibo as my parents or ourselves, like in public places. Again, not in a derogatory way or anything, just like a sign of description. So that brought that color difference in my mind. But again, not in a bad way, but I think there was a subtle uh, feeling of I'm seen as something better for what reason I did not understand at that age. So you were in Nigeria between the ages of five and... Ten. 
And then you mentioned that your your father passed away mm -hmm. in Nigeria. That's such a pivotal time in a child's development. How do you feel like that impacted you at the time? The impact was over time, Stephen. It was his first heart attack and he passed all of a sudden. So our whole world changed overnight. Now I know as a counselor, as a social worker, that grief process as a child was over time because I would always have the same dreams of my father coming back. I was always questioning where he was, what death meant. And then there was this transition of then being in India all of a sudden and my mother having this new identity of a widow, which was seen as something very symbolic in our culture at that time. I don't think it's changed much. But it's definitely better right now. So a lot of meaning was attached to that. Now, I'm the daughter of a widow, which means, again, my mother never remarried. Her whole focus was on the education of my brother and myself. So there was this constant awareness of I should live within the social society places on a woman and I should in no capacity defame my mother. That was always behind my mind, which led to good things. I made sure I get my education. I didn't get into trouble in any capacity, all those kind of things. But at the same time, I think it was very restrictive when I looked back. As you moved back to India, did you did you feel like India was home or was Nigeria home? Like, where did you feel most comfortable? Dad used to take us back home for vacation to India. So I still today feel like I kind of have a romantic relationship with India. It brings up very good memories for me. So I was happy to be there. But as I grew up, what I started to realize, these ideas about being a widow and how they would see my mother as someone inauspicious. So those things hurt me as a child. And that kind of felt like you're not good enough or there's something lacking for something that's not even your fault. You felt like you weren't good enough or did you feel like your mother was carrying some stigma? Yeah, like society would see you as a child being read by a widow. So how good has she brought you up? Right. Okay. It was this always, again, no one said that to me directly, Stefan, but there was the subtle thing always. You're in India. You're becoming a young woman. What were your dreams when you were a young person? So what I dreamt for myself is always to become a lawyer because my dad actually comes from a family of lawyers. So his father was a, a judge, his brothers were lawyers. My dad didn't end up becoming a lawyer. He was a pilot for the Indian Air Force and then he went into teaching. So he always dreamt of making me a lawyer. He would say, you talk so well, you, you would be a good lawyer. So that was my dream. But later on, I realized as I grew older, that was not who I wanted to become. What was it that struck you about being a lawyer that you were like, mm, maybe this isn't really the thing for me? Yeah, I guess I felt that you had to like really challenge people in a very rough and tough way. Maybe I got that idea from the movies I saw. I don't know. But I just felt that I wouldn't fit in that box very well. But I guess the line of work that I've chosen is kind of similar, right? Speaking up for people, supporting people, ensuring people's lives get better. Apart from that, personally, I always saw myself as getting married, again, just because of social norms. And I was very conscious about the age by which I would get married, because once you're in your 20s, there's a lot of social pressure that, oh, why aren't you still married? So you dreamt of being a lawyer, but then that changed. Now you're a mental health worker. When did that dream start to appear on the horizon as a path that you did want to follow? 
I actually wanted to become a journalist. There wasn't much push for that at that time. So I wanted to do my BA English literature. I was said not a good choice. So then I chose a bachelor's in economics and I did not enjoy that degree at all. But I got it done. And that's when towards the end of my bachelor's is when I recognized way back in India at that time that there is a profession called social work. And it was within the same university that I went. And uh, that is when that part started. If I look back in my years of classroom education, that was the best time of my life. Okay, so you worked as a social worker in India. For how long did you do that? I finished my master's and then I was engaged towards the second year, towards the end. So, and then I had to get married. Um, at that time, there was no support to work in my marital home. It was against the family norms for a woman to work. So I had to just graduate and become a full-time fledged household wife, I guess, a <laughs> uh, housewife in an extended family. So I did not work initially. And were you upset about that? Were you like, no, this is just normal. This is just what's expected. Like, how did you make sense of that? I don't know whether it's my personality, um, my core values have been like, go with the flow, lead with compassion, try to understand where people are coming from. I might have done it a little bit too much in some phases of my life. So at that time, yeah, it was definitely not my choice. It was a bit disappointing, but at the same time, being an optimist and always believing in people, I felt like, okay, I have to make this work. And uh, for me, getting married, it was just not about me culturally, right? It was also about making sure my mother is proud of the way I live my life. Was this arranged marriage? Yeah, my uh, partner was known to my family just for a very brief while. And then they wanted to marry me. And then they spoke to, they didn't approach me. Now he approached my brother because my brother was his friend. So your brother approved him as your husband and you weren't consulted in this at all? Well, I was told that so-and-so wants to marry you. And I was like, oh, okay, does that make you happy? And my brother was like, yeah, it's going to work. And I was like, okay. At that time, I was told, but you wouldn't be allowed to work. That was the part that was uh, disappointing. Right. So you weren't too upset about the marriage part. It was more that you wouldn't be able to pursue your career. Yeah, I wasn't upset about the marriage part because it was more like it has to happen. It's another milestone. It was very societal. When you think about that time now, mm -hmm. do you see it differently? Well, how I make sense of it now, Stefan, is uh, I don't believe in regretting things. So it had to happen. It happened. And now if I think about it, would I do that? No. Would I do that to my children? No. But again, right? They, they live in a different environment, live different day and time. You're at home. You're raising a family. How did you get from there to now being in Canada? Uh, I realized very soon, within a few years, once my son was born, uh, that I had to do something else other than being a, a 24 to 7 housewife. There was really parts of it that I loved, all right, taking care of people, taking care of my son who was born just after nearly a year. So I lived in an extended family, which means I lived with my in-laws, my brother-in-law, my husband and my son. So I decided I need to do something else because, yeah, I was just not feeling fulfilled. So I applied for my master's in philosophy. So in India, we say MPhil. So I pursued that. It was a, a huge challenge because I was the only one wanting to do it. My family members were more like, okay, at least you're not going to go out and work. So that's okay. And education is okay. So basically that meant for me practically getting up at around four in the morning, cooking, packing lunches for the three men in the household, waking my son up, getting him ready, leaving him at play school, 
attending class during those few hours, coming back, picking him up and then getting home. Right. And then the routine goes on. And once he's done bedtime, that's when I would sit with my books. And at that point, I did it just for myself. It was not because I was going to pursue a career or any of that. And then I finished my MPhil and then I started my PhD. So I was like, oh, this feels so good. This helps my sanity. So let me keep doing it. What next? I enrolled in the PhD program at the same university. The faculty there knew my challenges, so it was flexible. Well, I'm curious around that. Were there other women also going to university? Yeah, largely the culture was like that, especially in uh, the province that I come from. But at the same time, right, for example, the, the family that I was raised in, so my grandmother worked, my mother worked. So if I had married someone more within my kind of a community, as my husband's community and my community is pretty much different, they wouldn't have been that pressure not to work. So I was married more into a very conservative family where women didn't work. It was seen more as a shame on the ability of a man if he allows the woman of the house to go out and work. Then the pressure of having a second child came up and I um, had to give in. Again, I love my children today. But at that time, having raised my son, pretty much though I lived with a lot of people, his well-being, I feel like, was more on me. So I felt more in different capacities as a single parent. So I did not want to have a second child. I was really not for it. But again, my daughter had to happen. It happened. And at that point, Stefan was when... Uh, After she was born, I lifted my PhD, all the piles of papers and books, and my daughter, and I made that choice, like, am I going to kill myself trying to complete this and take care of two kids? And what is more important? And I looked at my daughter and her lovely face said, mom, I need you more. So I decided to dedicate myself to her and those formative years. And I put my PhD away and I never pursued it after that. And I nearly finished 80% of the work, but I do not regret that because she's turned out so well. And I know that that was more valuable. You were caught between these two pathways, right? On the one hand, this real drive, this ambition to use your intelligence, be in that academic setting, reach the highest level. And then on the other hand, having the social context, the expectations around being a good mother, being a good wife and being pulled in these two different directions. What was that like for you to navigate that at the time? It was hard to make that decision, especially because all the girls that I, so I went to girls' university, so all the girls that I went to university with were all in good positions. I was the only one who who wasn't still working or doing anything with my education. The university was was sex-segregated? Absolutely. So I went to co-ed schools, but the university that I went to uh, was always one. And was that a conscious decision you made? Well, when I did my undergrad and my post-graduation, it was more because of the university. It was a very well-known university. But after I was married, choosing a university was definitely a conscious choice to make it a smooth transition that it would be all women's so that I don't face any barriers at home. You don't finish your PhD, but you get through about 80% of it. You you do all the work and get no none of the credit, basically. Um, <laughs> yeah. Who made the decision to move to Canada? So that was my husband who made the decision. What did you know about Canada? That, okay, so this is going to sound funny, but so my mother's actually Anglo-Indian, which means she's half British, half Indian. So I've not seen my uh, maternal grandfather, but I've heard amazing stories about the really good person that he was. So I guess that influenced my thinking of white people. When, when we were in Zambia, Nigeria, my dad used to take us to India and on 
the way we used to visit some European countries. So basically that was my exposure to white folks, right? So it was like, yeah, I mean, white folks are great. My life is going to be good there. I'm a person who always wants to make peace in life, right? Day to day is important. So I never try to fight the fact that I didn't have much decision-making capacity. So when the decision was made, I was like, okay, it's going to be good for the kids, I guess, and that kind of a thing. So what was it like when you landed in Canada? Yeah, so a little backtrack here is that I started working in India a few years before we came here because I had to be the main applicant uh, because of education and all those things in age. My impression of coming to Canada was that, uh, so I came here under the skilled worker category, was that Canada needs social workers. So my first impression was, of course, Canada is beautiful, right? The place is amazing. The weather was nice in September when we came. But I just found it too, too calm for me because I was so used to having people around me and the noise. So that was a bit of a shock. And I guess the biggest shock was the professional, the systemic racism, to put it in very simple words, right? Because I came here thinking that I'm going to get a job because I've got, I've immigrated by providing all documentation of me being at work, of all my education, but that was not the reality. You've got a pretty good resume, you've got skills, you're putting out your resume, and what kind of feedback are you getting from the people that you're applying to? Zero feedback. At the max, it would be an email, thank you, we will let you know if we need you. There was one Indian family that we got to know here, they told me, and just enter the workforce. So I started working in a fast food, which was the closest to my house, because I didn't drive at that time. From there, I started also working in a senior's home. And there I realized uh, I saw a lot of immigrants being healthcare aides. And when I talked to them and got to know about their background, they were nurses, some were doctors, and they were healthcare aides here. So many of them told me, just dump your Indian education in the garbage, go get some kind of professional training here. So I was like, okay. And then I nearly signed up for the healthcare aid course, but then I learned about the human services course. So I enrolled myself in that for a year because I thought it was closer to social work. I didn't have to do that, actually. But the good thing is I got my contacts and references from there because basically the professors that I had there, especially one person, she looked at me and she's like, why are you here? And I said, well, this is why I'm here. And she's like, no, 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 this is what you need to do. And because before that, I want to say, Stefan, I went to so many immigrant serving organizations. No one guided me the right way. Thank God all my three degrees was uh, taken as equivalent to an MSW. And then I had to write the licensing exam, which thank God again, I passed the first time because at that time I was working multiple jobs. It sounds like one of the main barriers was that when you got here, you did go and you talked to immigrant serving organizations. You did reach out. You were looking for someone to help you really navigate the system and, and know where to go next. Was it that they weren't aware of what the system needed? from you? Or what do you think the barrier was? So for example, my experience at the time, again, this is eight years back, Stefan, hopefully things have improved, is that the employment councils that I spoke to didn't know anything about the social work profession. So they would say, go to this job fair, work on your resume, those kind of things. That didn't help at all. I wasn't told the exact steps. This is what happened, Stefan. I had started to set the bar very low for myself, right? So I started at addiction centers as a support worker. But if you look at my resume, I've been in my current job for four and a half years. But before that, I kept shifting at the max five months because I would get a job. I loved the client work, but the just the feeling of feeling underemployed was not 
very motivating. The other thing is that the racism that I faced in those jobs were more direct than subtle. So that was also hard. How did you keep yourself going? How did you keep yourself motivated? It's a beautiful question, Stefan. I want to say my children. I honestly feel they are my driving force till today because here's the thing, right? As immigrant parents, we bring our kids here. And my son was in grade 10 at that time and my daughter was nine, right? So they were going through their own transition. Now, my daughter was adapting more uh, easier because she was a young kid. My son as well. But the fact that they were going through so much and always wanting to be there for them emotionally was my main motivator, right? Because I did not want any of this transition to come in the way of our relationship. I wanted them to feel supported and heard. So I would compartmentalize. Had a hard day at work. Someone said something not so helpful. Just leave it there because I have a bigger purpose, which is being there for my children. Because they're actually the people who I'm like 100% responsible for. Did you have a community or people, friends, people that you were connecting with? Not really, Stefan. The reason is I always had to work two or three jobs. I was so tired of hearing, get the Canadian experience. So there was this drive or fire in me, which was like, I am going to get the Canadian experience. So I was working in addictions, working in in de-addiction, working uh, in domestic violence and men's mental health project with the University of Calgary. So all I was like, any opportunity, I would never say no. I would grab it, take it and run. Yeah. And then still be connected with my children. So that was my life. So there was really not not much time to build a community or any of that. I would say it's only recent. I want to say maybe in the last two years that I've been able to focus on that. Maybe you can tell our listeners a bit about some of the advocacy work that you do. If I wanted to go to counseling, I would want someone to understand this journey of mine. And I don't think... I always made the best decisions, but there were reasons why I made those decisions. And a lot of it was cultural, which many people may not understand. So I would want to be with a counselor who understands this. And at the same time, parallel what I see within the Eastern community here. um, So I'm Tamil, so I'm from the south of India. So there's a huge Tamil-speaking community here. But I know many of them don't talk about their mental health needs. And I know that there's so much going on within these families, just because of the process of immigration and then children... I mean, adjusting more into the Canadian culture, parents holding on to their culture, so many things, right? And I always wonder, like, who do these people talk to? So that's what inspired me to start my own YouTube channel in Tamil and basically talk about mental health. My whole goal with that is to normalize mental health. So through this channel, in a very small way, again, I'm not trying to change the world, but in a very small way, I want to just like remind people, I know everyone knows this, that right compassion and gratitude and humility goes a long way in in keeping your mental health positive and influencing other people's mental health as well. I wonder if there's also an element of it being a creative outlet for you. A hundred percent. It is so healing for me, for my own mental health, for my own traumas. And it's actually a lot of work. I didn't expect it would be so much work. You probably know, Stefan, but I don't want to give up. In the next year, where do you want to see that YouTube channel moving into? I actually started off as bilingual, but to be honest, because of time constraints, I'm not able to do it always in both the languages. So I'm focusing more on Tamil because I feel there's a bigger need. I want it to reach people here in Canada, the Tamil-speaking community, as well as people back home. That's my hope. Do you still go back to India? I do. So in the last eight years, I've been there twice. 
I really love keeping that connection up and knowing what's going on in the field of mental health. What are my peers doing? What's happening in the world of social work there? I do want to ask you a question that I ask all my guests, which is when you're looking over quite a journey that you've had, what's the thing that you've done that you feel the most proud of? I want to say, as I said, right, my children, because I feel like that's my first responsibility. Again, I don't know. I'm not going to claim I'm a perfect parent, but I think I have and will continue to do my best in that area of my life. The second thing that I'm proud of is that as much as there were struggles in the way of my education, I pursued it and I did not give up. Anyone can take away anything from you, but no one can take away your education from you. Very true. Yeah. yeah. So I'm happy I didn't give up on that. And the other thing is just the person who I am and the relationships that I have today. Let's end it there. Softly Spoken is a Tilted Windmills production. It was hosted and produced by Stefan de Villiers. If you enjoyed listening to this episode and you'd like to help support us, please share it with others, post it on social media, or leave us a rating or review. Thanks again, and see you next time.